Would you turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke again today? Today we find ourselves in the 18th chapter. We have just another week uh, looking at the parables from the Gospel of Luke. Today we're in Luke 18, verses 1 through 14. And if you're with us and able, I'd invite you uh, to stand with me in honor of the Lord's Word. Jesus was telling them a parable about their need to pray continuously and not to be discouraged. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him asking, give me justice in this case against my adversary. For a while he refused, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God or respect people, but I will give this widow justice because she keeps bothering me. Otherwise, there will be no end to her coming here and embarrassing me. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Won't God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he be slow to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice quickly but when the human one comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words, God, I thank you I'm not like everyone else. Crooks, evildoers, adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So many of you in this room are teachers or were professors of some kind. You'll understand how I feel about this, that that there are times in class, and it's not all that frequent, but there are moments where, where it just feels like heaven and earth are about to kiss, right? Where you're in your space, like it's happening, and, and everything's kind of right, and students are asking kind of good questions. But just this is for you students in the room. There is a way to bring that whole thing to a crashing halt. And it is to ask the wrong question at the wrong moment. And here is the wrong question. Yes. Will this be on the test? <laughs> Happens quite a bit, actually. And I never respond very well, right? I say something like, it's in the syllabus, all right, and then get back at it. But every once in a while, you're, you're in that place, and it just feels like, oh, all things are right. I want to take notes on myself today. Like, it's all good. And, Students ask out of sincerity and out of curiosity questions that you just say, oh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, right? Like flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But um, I, I actually had a, a, a situation like that just recently where 
a student stayed around after class and said, Dr. Daniels, I, I love what we were talking about today, and I don't even know if I'm going to ask this question the right way. I don't even know. All of this is so new to me that I'm not even sure. I may, this may sound really stupid, but, and then they asked this amazing question that was so, so demonstrated that they, under, that they were trying to understand and, and out of such a sincerity. And, and when that happens, I have to say, I, I, I'm writing on the board like I canceled my next appointment. You'll go on forever, right? Because those questions that resonate with what you, what you so want them to get and to be, and then it's not that that other question, is this going to be on the test? Or how many pages does the paper have to be? It's not that those are unimportant questions. It's just that I don't care about them. <laughs> right? It's just, it's not that they're bad people for asking those questions, but in those moments it reveals like what they care about most how distant that is actually from what you care about most, especially in that moment. This morning, I, I wanted to keep these two parables together. It would be easy to pull them apart, but I, I'm convinced today that they both have to do with prayer and to instruct us a bit about praying. And it's interesting that Luke is very fascinated about prayer. In fact, um, the Gospel of Luke talks about prayer 26 different times, the other gospel that's closest to it is Matthew, but Matthew only mentions prayer 16 times. In fact, if you take both Luke and Acts together, Luke gives us 58 different moments of instruction on prayer. I might count the rest of the New Testament. The whole Old Testament teaches us on prayer about 150 times. So over a third of the teaching about prayer we get from two books, Luke and Acts. Which makes me wonder, why is prayer so important to Luke? And there's probably lots of reasons for that, but probably my best guess would be as Luke thinks about the early church and what it means to be a people trying to embody the ways and the, the redemptive purposes of Christ in a broken world, and especially as the early church thinks about how little power it actually has in the world, how can we accomplish this call to make all things new that Christ has put upon our life? How do we do that? How do we do that? Do that with the right heart, connected to the things of God? And it seems to me the answer for, for Luke is that we pray. And that prayer teaches us how to stay connected to God and how to stay connected to the power of the Spirit at work in the world, making all things new. So this morning, I, I want to think about these two um, parables in Luke in the light of Luke's concern about prayer. Perhaps the most important teaching on prayer in the gospel happens in the 11th chapter where Jesus' Jesus's disciples say, teach us how to pray, Lord. And, and we get the major section of that prayer that we pray pretty regularly, the Lord's Prayer. There's five lines to the prayer in Luke Probably the two that are, are most powerful and central to the prayer are thy kingdom come and forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I want to say to us this morning, both of, those, both of these parables are essentially about that. It's about the kingdom of God coming and it's about learning how to forgive ourselves and each other. Let's think first about the widow. Um, so as we've been thinking about these parables, it, 
it's easy for us to begin to see the primary character in each of the parables as God. There was a farmer who went out to sow seed. Who's the farmer? God. There's a manager who does various things, who manages and goes off. Who's the manager? Probably God. There's a father who has two sons. Who's the father? God, right? There's a shepherd who loses 100 sheep, goes and, or loses one. If he lost 100, that would really be bad, but he loses 100, one. Who's the shepherd, right? Jesus, God. So it would be easy for us as we think about this parable that there is an unjust judge to think, oh, God? And if we're not careful, if we put God in the seat of the unjust judge, then this parable becomes about this. If we just bug God long enough, eventually he'll do what we want him to do. Which, by the way, sounds crazy, but a lot of people have kind of thought that way. It's not unusual for Christians when you feel like your prayer is unanswered for somebody to say to you, well, did you really pray? Did you, did you pray long enough? Did you mean it? Did you yell a little? Did you cry? That helps, right? Like we can turn it into this parable about how if we just put the right thing in or if we do it long enough, God will eventually say, all right, all right, all right. I didn't really want to give it to you, but I'll give it to you. I want to say to you, I think the unjust judge is certainly not God in this parable, but it is what I would call the principalities and powers in the world. As the early church goes out into the world, they find themselves in an empire, in a broken system, far from the purposes of God, much like the unjust judge, usually concerned much more about power and the accumulation of wealth than it is about actually doing what is right in the world. Some of you I know, uh, there's a Sunday school class reading a wonderful little book uh, by uh, this, this brilliant, thoughtful, young uh, biblical scholar, Kat Adams, a book called Abelita Faith, in which she writes it kind of in honor of her grandmothers but, and lots of grandmothers. But p- perhaps my favorite um, chapter in the book, she, she does this wonderful job of helping us hear, especially the voices of women that oftentimes get overlooked in the biblical text. But one of my my favorite chapters is she tells a story um, that I knew a little bit, but I really was unfamiliar with until reading her book. But it's it's a little story out of 2 Samuel, the 21st chapter, I believe. And it comes from the reign of David. And it's this odd story about a moment in Israel's history where there's a famine going on. And David is concerned. They're, They're out of water. Food's not growing. Everybody's hungry. And they're all angry with him. And, and, uh, the midterms are coming up. Um, and so he goes and, you know, seeks godly counsel, and the godly counsel comes back to him and says, here's the problem. There is a history of brokenness between us and the Gibeonites. It's not your fault. It's really Saul's. But Saul was supposed to care for the Gibeonites, but instead he misused them and actually killed several of their people. And there's been this broken relationship between us and the Gibeonites for about a generation now. And, and if that would be healed, then God would smile upon us and bring about the harvest, right? So David goes to the Gibeonites and says, hey, things are not right between the two of us. How can I make it right? And the Gibeonites say, well, we don't really want a protracted war, but we do feel like you owe us something. So here's the deal. We don't like Saul. He was the problem. So bring us seven of Saul's sons and let us enact justice upon them, and we'll call it even, right? So 
David had made a covenant with Jonathan, and so he takes care of Jonathan's son Mephibosheth in particular. But he goes and hunts down seven still living sons of Saul. Two of them were the sons of a concubine named Ritzpah. It's possible because Ritzpah is a concubine that she already been marginalized in life. It's likely that that was not a relationship she wanted into, but one in which perhaps she was captured and then put into Saul's household, but she bore him two sons, and these two sons are really all she has in the world. David takes her two sons, takes five other sons from another woman, takes them to the Gibeonites, and they kill them. And not just kill them, but they hang them up so that their bodies, so, so the whole world will know, don't mess with the Gibeonites, right? Let's bring shame, let's remember how shameful what Israel did was. And so let's leave their bodies up so the animals eat them and their bodies are desecrated. In 2 Samuel 21, Ritzpah does an interesting thing. She gets her mourning clothes on and she takes some other stuff with her and she goes and she camps out on a rock right below the bodies of these seven sons of Saul. And she just lives there. Some scholars think she may have lived there as long as six months. But she camps out on this rock and she, she holds vigil, shooing birds away and beasts from their bodies. But constantly crying out that somebody would pay attention to how wrong all of this is. And finally, after all these months, David's like, is that woman still over there? And the Gibeonites go, is that woman still making noise out there? And finally, because of her persistence and patience, David finally goes and not only gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan back, but he takes down those seven bodies, now their bones, and he has them properly buried in Israel. And what's fascinating is when the Gibeonites killed the seven men, nothing happened. But when David finally puts them to rest, rain starts to fall upon the land. Are you with me? Weird story, isn't it? But it's a story about a woman who has absolutely no ability to make change among the principalities and powers, so she does the only thing she can. She laments like we heard Jeremiah lament today. And cries until finally somebody pays attention. There's some scholars who think that little story that we often overlook is actually the basis of this parable that Jesus tells. This widow who just bugs the judge until the judge says, I don't really care about God and I really don't care about doing what is right. I just would really like you to be quiet for a while. So if God is not the judge, then how are we to read the parable? Actually, there's this wonderful line in the parable that I think invites us to read it very similarly to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where Jesus will say, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give... <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, good gifts to those who ask. And so that the parable seems to say, if this judge who will finally do the right thing because you bug him long enough, <clears throat> excuse me, there are bugs flying around up here and I needed the protein. <laughs> oh, breakfast. Um <clears throat> If this wicked judge will finally do the right thing, how much more will the God who longs to set things right in the world, when he hears his people cry out for those things, how much more will the power of God be enacted in order to bring about that justice? But then the text ends with this very important question. But when the Son of Man, or the human one in the common English Bible, when the Son of Man returns, 
Will he find us with that kind of heart? Will he find that kind of faithfulness, that kind of persistence, that kind of patience? Fascinating. The next parable is about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go to the temple. (coughs) I like this parable, but I don't think it really works in our context very well. We have this Pharisee who stands there and prays, oh, thank you, God, that I'm like all these other people, and (coughs) especially this tax collector. Thank you, God, that that's not me. I hope that when I read that story and read that parable to you this morning, that none of you in this room thought, oh, man, that's me. That's exactly how I've been thinking all day. Been standing here in this sanctuary, been online this morning thinking, thank God I'm not like all these other nitwits, (laughs) right? Thank goodness I'm not like all these other sinners all around me. Most of you didn't think that way. And the Pharisee just seems a little hateful and extreme for us. I do think, though, Phariseeism is a problem for us in the 21st century, but it looks a little bit different than standing in the public square and proclaiming how great we are, or in the temple. I've been playing around with this idea. I've been thinking about, if I were to write a 21st century handbook on how to be a good Pharisee, what would that look like? I might have it published. Stay with me. Here, here is, I'm still working on it, but here's my five tips for how to be a great Pharisee. The first thing is this. Be absolutely convinced that things are not as good right now as they used to be. You see, that was the Pharisee, largely the Pharisee's problem. We used to have everything really good with God and with everybody else, but now we don't have that. And so somehow we've got to get that back. So first of all, be convinced that everything is much worse than it used to be, and this is important to it. Be convinced that the reason things aren't as good as they used to be is because God's kind of ticked at us. And that largely the people who are supposed to be aren't faithful like they used to be. You with me? That's tip number one. Get that down. Very important. Can't be a Pharisee without it. Second, be convinced that you're part of the righteous remnant. Right? So step one is things are not the way they used to be. Largely because of unfaithfulness. God's really angry. But he's not really angry at me. Because if everybody were more like me, things would be fine. So thank goodness God has me on his side as the righteous remnant keeping all of this together. Amen? Come on, give me an amen. There's a lot of people who didn't show up, but you did today. We're the remnant. Now those are crucial. Those, Those first two are really crucial. But the third one, and this is important, start hanging out with people who think like that. So it's very important to have meetings where you gather together and you kind of encourage each other to think like that. I, I talk a lot about echo chambers, but they're really important. Find those echo chambers. I, you know, I'll get in trouble today, but between you and me, Pharisees would have loved the 21st century. They would love cable news networks. Pharisees would have absolutely loved talk radio. The internet would have been their home. They would love private Facebook pages. Places where we can go and talk about how good we are, right? And be constantly affirmed at how righteous we are. Now, those are the easy steps. But if you really want to get serious, you got to go to steps four and five. Don't just talk bad about those people. You know who I'm talking about. 
demonize them. That's very important. Very important that they not just be a problem, but they actually are the problem, right? And, and the more we can kind of demonize them, the more we can think they are constantly the problem and we really are not, that really works in our favor. And then the big one is this. Try to find schemes and strategies to make sure we get rid of them. Now, we can't really kill them. You were supposed to laugh there. <laughs> Please, that was just being facetious. We can't really kill them. But, I mean, much like the Pharisees say at one point, it is better for one person to die. It's better for us to get rid of one person than for the whole system to fail. Now, most of us don't stand in church and think, thank God I'm not like those other people. But those five may cut really close to a lot of our identities. Now, here's the problem. I am so good at naming those five things. But as Fred Craddock says about this text, we don't really hear this text unless we hear the ways that we're able to reverse Jesus' reversal and stand in the church and say, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. For the whole heart of the text is about how justification, the setting right of our relationship with God, is solely based on the mercy of God. And the steadfast love and mercy and the abundant grace of God. And that is where justification and a reconnection with the heart of God happens no matter who we are. I'm having a really great time uh, this semester. I'm teaching a class for the uh, seminary on uh, Wesley's life and thought. And, and Diane, it's been so much fun for me to get back into that stuff. And, and I love, I know that I was raised in this kind of Wesleyan thing and, and you messed me up and, and here I am. But, um, but if I hadn't been messed up by you, here's a reason I might join. I love Wesley's doctrine of prevenient grace. Now, that's a fancy word, but that basically means we Wesleyans think God is really indiscriminate when it comes to grace, like the indiscriminate farmer, just sowing seed everywhere, extending grace to all people. Now, that was important for Wesley because especially in his day, a lot of Christians coming out of the Reformation thought the only way to get out of works-oriented salvation is to assume that God has chosen or elected certain people for salvation and others not. But it can't be because they did something good. It just simply has to be out of God's decision to choose some and not choose others. So that those he chose got grace, but those he didn't, sorry. Wesley found that really corrupting of God's nature and character, and so just assumed that grace has to be prevenient. It is extended to all, but here's the thing. Grace then makes possible our ability to respond. The way I illustrate this with college students is to say, you may fall in love with somebody on campus, but if they don't love you back, and you just keep texting them, eventually you're going to get called into the office for stalking, right? Like you can't just force somebody to love, that, love you. But if someone who you hoped loved you shows up in the cafeteria and says, hey, by the way, I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. That's provenient grace because now you can say, yay, now I can respond. <laughs> So grace is provenient, and that's really beautiful and perfect. But here's what it also says, and it's the heart of this parable. It means none of us got here because we figured it out and others didn't. That's right. That's right. We are who we are by the mercy and grace of God. 
And those who he often over, looked down upon and demonized like the Pharisee looks down on the tax collector, or we now look down on the Pharisee, we forget that we are all here by the grace and mercy of God. And that other is not a demon. They are a person who desperately needs to know how much God loves and cares for them. Amen? That's good preaching. Uh, So prayer has to do with asking for the right things and having the right posture. I joke sometimes that about all I know about prayer, I learned in kindergarten. I've probably told you the story before. When I was uh, in kindergarten, uh, my mom's best friend was a woman named Glafrey Gilliland. They were roommates in college and best friends through life. Glafrey went to be with the Lord several years ago now. Probably the, the, the best prayer warrior I've known and... Uh, was wonderful at teaching people how to pray. So when I was a kindergartner, apparently in kindergarten, it's very important that you learn to skip. You can't go to first grade unless you've learned to skip, apparently, at least in the Colorado school district. So it was early in the school year, and uh, the fifth graders, I just remember the fifth graders would show up every day and try to teach us kindergartners to skip. Now, I know this will shock you because you think of me as so athletic and ambidextrous and, and graceful in so many ways, like how I almost tripped on the stair a moment ago. <laughs> That you would think, oh, certainly you were the first to learn, and then you helped the others. Uh, no, you'd be wrong about that. I know, that shocks you, but you'd be wrong. So each day was like a bad Agatha Christie novel. About half the class learned the first day. And then most of the class that didn't learn the first day learned the second day. And then there was one, right? Me. So I went home very discouraged about the fact that I had not learned how to skip yet. The fifth graders were a little frustrated they were going to have to come back again. Uh, to pursue one lost lamb, um, one non-skipping lamb. Glafrey happened to be at our house, and so uh, I was telling her about it, and she asked me a question so typical of something great Glafrey would ask. She said, well, Scott, have you prayed about it? Right. And I was only five years old, but I was me. I looked at her like, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, pray about it. That's great. Great advice, Glafrey. Um, and she said, no, and she made me learn uh, Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything instead pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for, for his answers. So we prayed about it. And you know, like, you know where the story's going. The next day, bang, I learned how to skip. Actually, God sent a, uh, a, a wise fifth grader who said to me, you're making this harder than it needs to be. It's just two on one foot and two on the next. And I was like, oh, math, of course. So I just did fine, right? Well, I have told that story as this amazing, I mean, that has so shaped my imagination. God cares about kindergartners that don't know how to skip, right? Like God cared about that. God cares about all these things. And I want to say to you, that is absolutely true. But here's the thing. That was 51 years ago. I hope my prayers at 56 are a little more mature than just my skipping concerns in life. That my eyes that only see self Obsess about my own concerns. That something of the heart of God has captured my own heart and imagination. So that I not am only concerned about my little universe, but I've come to see all of the ways of brokenness in the world as we confessed in the psalm text this morning. The world's a mess, God. And we see that and know that and we 
We cry out to God, and we in this room are not as limited in power as that widow. Some of us have a great deal of ability to make a difference. But even there, it still feels so overwhelming in the world. And so we cry out to God, and will he find us faithful when he returns? But are we crying out for that justice in a posture not of arrogance and self-righteousness and self-satisfaction, but out of a heart that cries out for the mercy of God. In our early morning service, um, we pray every Sunday like we do here, but we pray kind of liturgically. We're going on six or seven years of that liturgical service, and, and every Sunday we have this prayer moment and we always have five sections. The five sections are almost always the same. We pray first for the church, the capital C, the church in the world, that we would be unified and that we would glorify God. In the second section, we pray always um, for justice, for those who've been hurt and damaged and marginalized in the world, that they would find peace and reconciliation. Third, we always pray for those who consider us enemies. Fourth, we pray for the needs of the body. And then fifth, we give thanks to God for the things that he is doing. I love, by the way, the group that shows up in the morning and, and all of us are getting formed in certain kinds of ways. But I noticed, Brent, like when we first started that, we, we will pray this certain kind of written prayer and then we give people opportunity to respond, to offer prayers there. I would say in the first two, three years, it was very rarely the case that when we got to the brokenness in the world and those who consider us enemies, that anybody really could think of something to pray there in the gap. I remember when my dad would leave those prayers, he'd often say to me, how long do I have to leave the awkward silence, son, before we go on, right? Like, I said longer, right? But, but when we got to the prayers for the needs of the body, woo, everybody chime in, and we have things to thank for, you know, but the longer we've done it, the more that has shaped our imagination, the more I find people finding ways to articulate and to cry out to God for the brokenness of the world and, and to, for those who consider us our enemies. It's actually been really beautiful. It's been a way of reshaping our imagination, I believe. But every time we get to the end of that section, we say the same phrase. The one leading says, Lord, in your mercy... And we respond, hear our prayer. Would you try that with me? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And what Luke wants to say to us about prayer this morning, it's not that God doesn't care about the little things in our life. He certainly does. And some of our little things can be quite big at times. But God is desperate for Widows who will continue to cry out for things to be made right in the world. And if even unjust systems can eventually change, how much more will God get involved when we are praying the things that God cares about most? I'm afraid sometimes my prayers come off like asking him, is this going to be on the test? And God says, oh, But it's also about us finding the right posture. For as that prayer reminds us, mercy is the fuel of God's transformative power in the world. So I'd invite you, I want to pray for us. 
We're a little too big to just shout stuff out. Some of you online might want to type some things in. But I'd invite you to respond to these prayers quietly or silently where you are. But let us pray for the church and the world. Almighty God, we pray for your church throughout the world. Grant that our divisions may cease, that we may be one, and that we may be found without fault at the day of your coming. May we be further transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the Holy One. May we recognize the power of the Holy Spirit for illumination and transformation. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for the poor, the persecuted, the sick, and all who suffer. For refugees, prisoners, and all who are in danger, that they may be relieved and protected. For those who've experienced physical, emotional, or spiritual violence this week, we lift them to you. Hear our cries today. Lord, in your mercy, we pray for those who may consider us enemies and all who wish us harm, and for all who we have injured or offended, grant them your peace and enable us to be peacemakers. Lord, in your mercy, as we have already, we pray for this congregation, God, that we might show forth your glory in all that we do and for those who've commended themselves to our prayers, including those who are sick and those who grieve and those who struggle in the circumstances of their lives. We pray again, especially for those who came seeking anointing today. Grant that all of these may be delivered from anxiety and live in joy, peace, and health. Help your church to more faithfully become the body of Christ for the world. Lord, in your mercy, and we bless your holy name for the thanksgiving of your people, would you take a moment and offer your thanks to God? And we thank you for those in every generation in whom Christ has been honored. Give us grace. Give us grace. Give us grace to follow their good examples, that with them we may be partakers of your heavenly kingdom. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Would you stand with me? I know that I have about 47 favorite songs, but this time I mean it. I want us to close with a great prayer that has truly become one of my favorites because it takes the right posture and it prays for the right things. Let's sing it together this morning. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. 
Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of it? He is. God's people said, Amen. Um, as you go this morning, uh, so next week uh, we're going to be in the parables one more time, but beginning the 1st of October, uh, we're going to try something next year from October, hopefully through the end of next September, uh, to, to go through the whole of the scripture. Uh, Pastor Ryan has helped make us some bookmarks for October. If you'd like one, you can take one on your way out. We'll, they'll be available next week also. They give you text for each day, um, but they also, if you they give about three chapters for each day, if that's more than you have ability to handle right now, there's a shorter text that you can jump in and and on Sundays, we'll be gathering together and walking together. We'll have some daily things for you uh, to help you uh, in that journey. But also, Wednesday nights, we'll gather together to reflect on what the Lord is saying to us through His Word. So I'm excited about that. So take one of those with you today. If you've listened well this morning, um, God invites us to be people of prayer but he loves it most when those prayers come from a heart of humility and resonate with the things he cares about most. But for all things to be made new, as we've just sung about, to start, to start the morning with this, oh Lord, the world's a mess, and to end with he's making all things new. Somewhere in that gap, there's a lot. And it's kind of overwhelming. But that's why this benediction's for us this morning. And now unto him who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us, the people he calls his church, and in his son, Christ Jesus, now and for every generation. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.